Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, <laughs> welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and sports nutrition professor of over 15 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I'm a strength coach. I run Strength Guild, uh, as well as, you know, a bunch of other stuff. Strength Guild, Live for Hope. Jeez, uh, uh, just like I said, a lot of things. So. I'm tired. I had about two and a half hours of sleep. So. <laughs> we'll let you slide. <laughs> yeah. Ouch. Uh, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. <clears throat> I'm the owner of Extreme Human Performance, a uh, faculty member at the Kerrig Institute, do online training and coaching, and uh, I was in Costa Rica last week, which was pretty amazing. So I saw yeah. some of your, your tweets about, I think you, they were from the jungle <laughs> or something. Yeah, they were from the jungle. Like, I literally, we had an outdoor area. It was uh, through Dr. Ben House at uh, Functional Med Costa Rica. And it was pretty amazing the place you stayed at. And where we were presenting uh, was literally just a roof <clears throat> and a whiteboard or a screen. And you could see, like, all the jungle in the background. It was all open air. And, uh, wow. yeah, it was pretty amazing. Indiana Jones of the fitness that's world. Yeah, wonderful. that's what it reminded me of. Cause Dr. Jones. I had to crawl out of the jungle once on our <clears throat> hands and knees because it rained. And the whole path turned to, like, Slippery mud, so we got to practice our sideways bear crawls. I don't know if, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's exotic or that just kind of sucks. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was one of those things where if you said, "Hey, this is what we're going to do today," I'd be like, "No, not a chance at <laughs> right. all." But once it happened, you're like, eh, "This is kind of cool. When else am I ever going to do this?" <laughs> yeah, it's like academic, and you get to run a tough mutter at the same time, yeah. kind of thing. With a choice, to you yeah, have. right. Yeah. Yeah. Might as well enjoy it. Yeah, <laughs> we need to get you one of those shirts that says "For Science." <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Let's see what we've got here. Um, we're going to start. We have, I have two little bits of news. I know Phil's got some uh, lifting industry news. And then we're going to get to our topic. Uh, the topic is going to be extreme diets. We'll talk about we're, uh, before we hit the record button, everyone, we were just talking about the cyclical nature of some of these things, you know, these extreme diets. And, and in fact, last week, uh, John, Mike, and I were just kind of, talking uh, similar that so many of them have it, a big part of their mechanism of action is just the caloric deficit you know when they're done right but anyway strength and muscle sport news this uh this is a bit of listener mail and, and it led us to news so let's see it says hi uh dr lowry and the guys this is john uh weight training uh let's see Something about weight training is best, uh, and interval training may be best for endurance. What, do you, what you gentlemen always preach is codified here. I, I like the last sentence in this article that says, in fact, older people's cells responded in some ways more robustly to exercise than the cells of the young did, suggesting that it's never too late to benefit from exercise. So I ran with this, John, and I pulled up the New York Times article. This is by Gretchen Reynolds. And then I went and pulled the actual peer-reviewed one because everybody knows what I think about fitness and the science journalists. But um, And not all bad, of course, not all bad. The title of this from the New York Times was The Best Exercise for Aging Muscles. It's essentially an exploration of different types of exercise. So it starts off saying the toll that aging takes on the body extends all the way down to the cell level. Uh, but the damage accrued by cells in older muscles is especially severe because they do not regenerate easily and they become weaker as, as their mitochondria, which produce energy, diminish in vigor and in number. So this is all about a study published this month in Cell Metabolism, and I will get to this. It's by Robinson et al. And they're talking about how exercise may undo some of what the years do to your mitochondrial powerhouses in your cells. So this is from Mayo, up there by you, Dr. Nelson. Um, yes. They took 72 healthy but sedentary men and women who were 30 years or younger, and then they compared them in part to those older than 64 years of age. 
after baseline measures were established for their aerobic fitness, their blood sugar levels, and gene activity, as well as mitochondrial health and muscle cells, the volunteers were randomly assigned to uh, different exercise regimens. Uh, one did vigorous weight training several times a week. One did interval training, so sort of high-intensity interval training. And a group did moderate pace cycling, it looks like, 30 minutes a few times a week. So I think they're trying to tease apart intensity, right, whether it's uh, aerobic intensity or even anaerobic in a sense um, versus lighter stuff. And then they also look, of course, the age issue. It says after 12 weeks in general, everyone had improvements in fitness. All of them had better ability to um, handle blood sugar. Uh, that's not surprising to almost any of us, I think. Uh, it says more unexpected were the results from the biopsies. Um, those who did the high-intensity interval training, activity had changed in 274 genes compared with 170 genes for those who did the more moderate exercise and only 74 genes for the weightlifters. Hmm. It says among the older cohort, almost 400 genes were working differently after 12 weeks. So they said, in a mm. nutshell, at least in the, um, the journalist says, especially in the cells of interval trainers, um, there was a strong influence on the ability of mitochondria to produce energy. Uh, let's see, they had both increased in number and in health of their mitochondria. And this was particularly pronounced in the older cyclists. Hmm, the cycling interval training guys. Uh, so sort of nutshell, it seems as if the decline in cellular health of muscle associated with aging was quote unquote corrected with exercise, especially if it was intense, says Dr. Sri Kumaran Nair, Dr. Nair, uh, professor of medicine and an endocrinologist at the Mayo Clinic and the senior author. He says, in fact, older people's cells responded in some ways more robustly to intense exercise than the cells of the young did. So I mm. thought that was cool. Uh, thank you, John, for that. Let, I actually put a picture up on Twitter and on our Facebook listeners page. It's a diagram that's straight out of this article. So I pulled the full article. Here it is. Robinson and colleagues' uh, enhanced protein translation underlies improved metabolic and physical adaptations to different exercise modes in young and old humans. Here's the highlights. This is f literally from the Cell Metabolism Journal uh, webpage. Highlights, high-intensity interval training improved age-related decline in muscle mitochondria. Two, training adaptations occurred with increased gene transcripts and ribosome proteins. Three, changes to the message, right, the RNA with training had little overlap with the corresponding protein abundance. Now, that's mm. interesting. Uh, and again, th this is described in the picture that I put up there. But listeners, if you're not familiar, right, the messenger RNA that's sent out from the nucleus once it's stimulated, ideally, right, you would think it would lead to some new protein being created, actin or myosin or some enzyme or something. Uh, and it doesn't look like it's, a, you know, an automatically causal thing. And I think a lot of us know that, right, in the sciences, messenger RNA, the message can degrade. It always doesn't come to fruition properly. Uh, and then finally, enhanced ribosomal abundance. And again, think about ribosome factories. That's what's making the proteins your cell needs. Um, and protein synthesis uh, do explain the gains in mitochondria. So uh, if you look at the summary just quickly, the molecular transducers of benefits from different exercise modes remain incompletely defined. Uh, we did show enhanced insulin sensitivity and enhanced lean mass, but only high-intensity interval training and combined training improved aerobic capacity and skeletal muscle. High-intensity interval training revealed a more robust increase in gene transcripts, right? So genes getting turned on, gene activity, than other exercise modalities. So hmm. uh, the little diagram shows a little kind of a uh, runner dude on a treadmill and then a little weightlifter silhouette, little icon. And um, you know how the weightlifting, if, if it's not accompanied by high-intensity interval training, for example, you'll get hypertrophy, but you won't get uh, necessarily as robust an effect on your mitochondria. And that, that kind of makes sense, right? I mean, if you're going to do cardio, it's going to help with the oxidative systems in your cells. 
I think this depends on how they had them resistance trained too. And I did not look at that. But if you do train intensely, the rest periods between your intense bouts are fairly aerobic in nature, right? And so Yeah, very aerobic. Yeah. So um yeah, but they're they're suggesting that resistance training by itself is more just a hypertrophic response as opposed to mitochondrial and other things. And it kind of shows how, you know, your DNA gets stimulated, sends out the message to the ribosome factory, makes this, the cellular proteins that you need. So, uh, yeah, and interesting stuff that in some ways it may actually benefit the the older exercisers more. Pretty cool. Hmm. Um, the other one I've got here is from Twitter. Um Joey Antonio, who we know, uh, a friend of the show, Dr. Antonio, uh, co-founder of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. Uh, he's been promulgating this one. Whey protein hydrolysate and branched-chain amino acids down-regulate inflammation. Hmm. Down-regulate, in fact, inflammation-related genes in vascular endothelial cells. So it says a recent hmm. review of clinical studies reports that dairy products may improve inflammation. It's controversial, however, uh, which proteins are at work here, the whey versus the casein. Uh, in this particular review of other studies, and again, this is nutrition research. This is brand new stuff, spanking new. Specifically, the impact of whey proteins, either isolate or hydrolysate versus caseins versus amino acids. Uh, it says the whey hydrolysate, as well as the branch chain amino acids, leucine, isoleucine, and valine, Attenuated uh, tumor necrosis alpha-induced inflammation. Interesting. Um, this effect was not observed in unstimulated cells. So again, they have to be sort of irritated, I think. It says, oppositely, casein uh, and a whey casein mixture uh, aggravated some of this inflammation. So not quite as good news for the casein, I guess, or the whey casein mixture, which was a one-to-four mix of whey and casein. Uh, also, glutamine aggravated TNF inflammation. Uh, it, it, then it muddies the waters a little. It says caseins did have, I'm not going to bore you with the specifics, but caseins did have some anti-inflammatory effects in other uh, variables. So taken together, this study shows whey proteins and their major amino acids normalize <clears throat> TNF alpha-induced pro-inflammatory gene expressions in endothelial cells. So, hmm. neat. I mean, it makes sense That's in some ways. Yeah. I, I never thought about whey protein. It's, I guess think about it, like, how many different reasons do you need to consume whey protein, I think, at this point? You know, muscle protein yeah, synthesis, anti-inflammatory, um, anti-hypertensive. Uh, the list just goes on. So Yeah, I saw something recently that was something like five or seven ways, like, not to or reasons why not to use whey protein. And I I couldn't get through all of it because it's <clears throat> pretty much the direct opposite of everything I thought. <laughs> oh, <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, so that's what I've got from the, the science news. Phil, you said, what did you say? There's a shit storm coming up or something's happening in, in the lifting industry? Well, we have the, this weekend is the, oh, let me, I don't, I don't want to mess up the title of it. The CETCUS Open. So it's a USPA meet. It's pretty much the biggest. The USPA 2017 US Open. Hmm. Um, Gracie V out in San Diego is running it. They, this is the meet JP did last year. Oh, okay. And went out there and won a few thousand dollars. They upped the ante this year. They're giving away. It was $300,000. I think it's $200,000 now. Wow. Really? So, that's got to yeah. be a record, isn't it? So, yeah. Powerlifting? Yeah, that's that's big money. So basically, yeah. you had to be the top 10 in the world to get an invite. And basically, they're giving away $35,000 to each class. So, for instance, Open Men Classic Raw is $35,000 with the best. The first place taking home $15,000, second place $10,000, uh, third place $5,000 on down. Yeah. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's a nice chunk of money. Um, they had a they had a few lifters back out. Some of the Russians and Zahir just backed out like this week, last minute. Um, ben Moore's out there. JP didn't go. He got hurt like six months ago and pulled out. So he's he's doing great now, but he's rehabbing, just not in shape to be out there. 
Um, it's going to be interesting. This thing is going to be, there's been big promises talking to, to other people in the industry. There's been big promises of big money in the past. And the issue has been, well, when it came time to cut the check, uh, yeah, then some people so, never got paid. I know. So yes, exactly. <laughs> so was, and, you know, the hard thing about this is it's like a, so she had an event last year and you know, it was a spectacle for sure. And they gave away a good amount of money, a few thousand dollars to do a pilot. I mean, it's good, it's good money. Yeah. Um, you know, you bump it up to this type of money and you're talking huge money and she's got some backing in this and that. Um, they, they rented a fairgrounds from what I hear. She's selling booths for the same price as you buy them at the Arnold. Wow. Um, yeah. Which is, I don't know. I, I've heard good and bad about that. I mean, some people oh. are like, why am I going to pay the same price for the Arnold? Yeah, you know, to go to a pilot it's thing. worth it, but I don't know. Depends <laughs> on how many people they get to show up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's the thing. I mean, this thing, I don't know. She, I got to give it up to her. She's yeah. going out there and doing it. And she stepped up, and it's either going to be a really amazing thing or a really amazingly <laughs> bad thing. So, <laughs> one right, of the two. Right. Uh, Man, you know, they're selling, they're selling a live stream, and. I don't know how she got them, but I mean, they they had an ad with Chuck Norris on there talking about the live stream. Really? Hmm. Yeah. So yeah. all these people pushing the live stream out there, which who knows? Maybe if they can get you know at ten bucks, get fifty thousand yeah. people to sign up for that. Well, there's your money. Yep. You know, so we'll see. Uh, no, it'll be interesting to see. So they got a hell of a roster. Um, there's not quite ten in each each class. Like I said, some of them backed out, but uh, you know, some huge some huge names. Um, and you said this is all over the the world, right? Not just U.S. Yeah, so you had to be top ten uh, as far as powerlifting watch, and then any international lifters that are in feds that aren't covered by powerlifting watch, basically you had to send in a uh, an application to her. Okay, and just basically just to prove that you're in, you have the ability that these yeah. other people did. Um, you know, like Ben, he's pulling over eight and squatting mm-hmm. over nine i think and you know so i mean it's 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 the Ooh. best of the best yeah serious yeah right now so and, what's the uh, date of it phil it's today oh it's today oh today wow. and tomorrow so today and tomorrow yep today and tomorrow going on so that'll be interesting if anybody watch i'm sure there's people listening that, that are gonna be watching the feed so it'll be interesting i'm sure i'll get updates this whole time through via via ben and them so right out there see how he does uh, i know his trainings went well and nice. you know, there's eight women lifters, and uh, yeah, so it's stacked across the board. The women lift tomorrow. The guys lift today. They start early, at like eight o'clock or something like that. Oh man, mm. uh, yeah. And I don't know. I think it's like fifty dollars to get in. Hmm. Uh, you know, I feel bad about saying this might be a shit storm. I guess m- that my comment was about let's see what happens right because yeah if if yeah. this is a bait and switch like we have all this money they draw out the big uh, names they get chuck norris involved everything else and then yeah, yeah we don't really have the money you know the only thing i've seen is that is the talk like that from people and it's you know i'm being 100 honest on here it's like when we sat down and did the math we're like where the hell's the money coming from and generally i don't care who you have backing you People that have that kind of money to back you aren't doing it out of the kindness of their heart. No, they're not doing it to take a loss. They're going to give away three hundred thousand dollars to get bring back five hundred. <laughs> right? Know? Oh yeah, it's business. So yeah. yeah, it's just what business is. So hmm. um, we'll see. I mean, I hope this thing works out amazingly. It would be great for the sport. Oh, yeah, that'd be yeah. pretty awesome. I mean, yeah. I mean, of course, it draws in people from all over the place. I mean, fifteen thousand dollars is a nice chunk of money here if you live in like the Ukraine. Holy crap! Ooh. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Depressed economy. You know, yeah, yeah. You just, I, you just did your work for the year, so um, that'd be yeah, brilliant. So I, I, I hope it, I hope it pulls off well, and it'll be interesting to to see the updates coming in. Um, yeah, me too. I mean, I, I get tired of hearing how much money is in basketball and stuff that I don't really care about much, really. Um, you know, those guys, they're fussing. Oh, I only got $46 million in my contract. Really, man? Because yeah. I, I guess what all I'm saying is for those people, if they're like, oh, don't be, don't be you know, dissing basketball. Well, listen, I get it, right? And, and resistance training is a part of that sport. Some people call it a big man's sport, stuff like that. I get it. But I, it just the massive discrepancy. It'd just be nice to see lifters 
pull in that kind of money. Like, I'm just yeah. not that excited watching somebody, you know, shove a ball into a red little red hoop. Yeah. That's, I, I rather watch someone pull some heroic amount of iron off the ground. But again, that's mm-hmm. weird to other people. So For sure. And essentially, uh, you know, they broke up the prize money, so it's not just uh, – it's done on coefficient, of course, but – there's heavy and lightweight, so it's not lightweights going against heavies, which is usually always the the bitch at meets when they pick out best lifter. Yeah. Uh, if it's a light guy, then all the big guys are harping that it's always the light guy that right. runs the coefficient. Or yeah, the, exactly. And the opposite. The ratio know. is off. Um, yeah. 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 So, you know, they broke it up. It's one over 198 and under 198. Each group gets $35,000. Hmm. So, That's brilliant. Um, yeah. And then I think there's, there's also prizes for, like, best bench and – Five hundred here, thousand there. Um, oh, I like yeah. that. I like that sort yeah. of achievement type things where they can pick out not just the single, yeah, like one heavyweight champion, but yeah, like who's got the biggest bench and yeah, I love it. And then if you win, if you win your weight class, you get what is it? If you win your weight class, you get a thousand dollars. Um, so even if you don't get coefficient, but you won your weight class, you get money. Um, hmm. In second and third place to get money. Yeah, you can see the bills sort of building up quickly here. You know. Yeah. As far a, as... Yeah, you do math and it's like, ooh, that's a lot of cash. Yeah. And I'm sure renting the freaking fairgrounds, Oof. the Del Mar fairgrounds, was not cheap. <clears throat> yeah. So. Well, uh, we'll see. We'll see yeah, what happens. I mean, we'll see. I hope it. I hope it pulls off well and you know turns into a, a great uh, event for years to come. You know, with maybe even bigger money. Right. You know, it'd be yeah. nice to see that. That's yeah. going to draw more people to the sport. So. Good. Good luck, right. Ben. Okay. Yeah. Pick up heavy things. Don't hurt yourself. So. I just um, have one other study here, too, if you're yep. ready. Um, basically, you guys will find this interesting. It was the influence of omega-3 fatty acids on skeletal muscle protein metabolism and mitochondrial bioenergetics in older adults. Oh, so no. basically, is your fish oils possibly anabolic in older individuals? And the, the takeaway is that they seem to hint that it might be. Um, Curious. The study is from, yeah, the study is from aging. Uh, main author is actually from the, the Mayo, just down the road here in Minnesota. And the cool part about the study is that they actually looked at the levels, so blood levels of omega-3, so EPA and DHA specifically. So those are the fish oils. And we also looked at compliance at the end of the study so they remeasured uh, blood levels they actually even measured uh, rbc content so red blood cell content to make sure that people were actually compliant with it and that type of thing mm-hmm. um it wasn't necessarily a training outcome study per se they looked at a lot of different uh, molecular things related to mitochondria looked at ross production uh different things like that they did look at um fractional synthetic rate for protein metabolism. And they used about four gram dose of EPA plus DHA. And they did that for about four months. So pretty high pretty long study. High pretty dose. High dose. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So I thought that was actually pretty interesting. Now, we don't know if that applies to healthy younger people. Some other data stating maybe, but that was only if you really whacked them with a ton of insulin and um, that type of glucose at the same time for an acute effect. Um, but yeah, maybe we'll see more things in that area trying to combat some of the anabolic resistance. I I find that curious because there was speculation years ago, and it was just speculation that yeah. uh, fish oils might blunt muscle protein synthesis in the young. Right. Right. Because of their, I think it's some through some prostaglandin E2 mechanism, some cellular pathway, it was going to blunt anabolism. Yeah. Uh, so this the might. there was it was turning down the inflammatory process too much. Yeah. Right. Because you right. need that balance of inflammatory and anti inflammatory. Yes. And listeners, if you want to be confused shitless, look, look into <laughs> inflammation and antioxidant versus free radical kinds of metabolism because. It's re- you need the sweet spot of these things. You mm-hmm. right. You need enough inflammation and oxidative stress to get results, adaptations. You don't want to blunt it completely. I, I think this might be one of those ones where the uh, older, older guys and gals, it might be almost opposite. 
you know, where it's helping, oh, it it's helping with the older and maybe not as much with the young. I will say this though, all that, all that speculation about fish oils being anti-anabolic, as it were, in the younger people, I never bought that much because there's just too many jacked guys taking fish oils, right? Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. Yeah. And again, when you realize that most people are super low in, so I use an at-home uh, essential fatty acid testing kit through Omega-3 tests through Doug Bilvis. And, you know, the testing I've looked at over the last five years, uh, I think I've had two people that were probably in a pretty okay, you know, range. We look at blood and uh, red blood cell content, even in people who are taking fish oil. So most people are still kind of walking around probably more on the deficient side Agreed. or that their omega-6 is still much higher than their omega-3. Yes, right. Yep, absolutely. Hey, I should make, since this is also aging-related, um, I, I was remiss I didn't mention this too. When John sent me that stuff from the New York Times, um, I had just yesterday had a conversation in the gym about this, um, about older lifters, basically. A guy said, hey, are you dieting for a show? And I said, oh, no. You know, my joints won't, won't – I can't lift heavy enough to do this well you know, I remember a comment, Phil, you made years ago about if you want to do something, you want to be freaking good, you know. Now, you, you got to take into account surgeries and age and all that other stuff. But in, in that sense, I think in some ways bodybuilding differs from powerlifting, but n taking nothing from the older bodybuilders. But anyway, the point was, I said, yeah, I dropped about 17 pounds. I pulled some fat out of my diet, you know, because I had been pulling carbs out, but I was eating plentiful, healthy fats. I mentioned last week, I think. I pulled that out. I dropped quite a bit of weight, and I am getting leaner. I've got to decide how twinky I want to get. I'm down to 196 now. Um, <laughs> but then the conversation turned. He said, I said, oh, yeah, I blew out my knee last summer, you know, and getting old just kind of sucks. And he said, how old are you? I said, well, you know, I'm 48. And he goes, yeah, I'm 51. And this guy does not look like he's 51. I mean, he's not – ripped he's not in shape in that way he's strong he's just heavily built guy if anything he's you know carrying a little bit of extra body fat but um then we started talking about how the old guard in the gym you would never guess i think that all of us are hovering around 50 plus or minus five years you know mm -hmm. they're compared to the guys up and down my street all these guys look so young i mean yeah you might have the scar tissue you might be stiff in the joint longer to warm up that kind of stuff but when you just look at them um, I've got, I've got people up and down my block and he was saying the same thing. Um, they're in their mid thirties, early thirties, and they look older than we do. So all this stuff about turning on the right genes and, you know, supplying the right nutrients, uh, the lifestyle adds up. It really does. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's just kind Especially of I think when you're looking sort of not to be on a downer, but that far into the future, right? You know, if you're 25, you can probably abuse yourself pretty bad and still be okay. But and keep doing that for another couple of decades, and it's going to add up. It's a good point. And our lifters, when you're, if you're a 30 or 40-something, I know we have quite a few. And I know the young guys are like, oh, God, the old farts are at it again. But <laughs> if, if you're middle-aged, yeah, I mean, I saw some interesting stuff years ago when I was up in Minnesota, actually. They were, they were saying how the importance of some of these prostate cancer-reducing nutrients like in tomatoes and whatnot, it may be especially important to get them – in your middle years, you know, because some of these mm -hmm. diseases start to happen when, frankly, you're old enough to manifest your genetic blueprint, you know, <laughs> and yeah. so you're trying to keep keep this stuff in check. So, um, okay, last up before we go to break, and Dr. Nelson leads us through a discussion on extreme diets. Uh, I just wanted to say thank you to the following supporting members. Uh, we very much appreciate you guys. You keep the lights on, right? This is important stuff. We are a public radio format. And when I mention this verbally, I think people tune out the mid-show uh, announcements or at the end. So uh, I, I want to give credit where it's due. Corey, Jacob, Daniel, Ruvim, Christopher, and Douglas, uh, you're on my list. And again, I just do this. I, I check out my phone, the most recent um, sort of report from... Our supporting members, and I know there are some people who make one-time donations and that sort of thing, you are appreciated, folks, because otherwise there is so much crap in the fitness industry. I mean, I can't even listen to a lot of the podcast. I mean, some of them are well-meaning, but God dang it, I'm just cringing when I, I have to turn them off. <laughs> and that's so judgmental. It's not, you know, like my wife always says, good thing we're perfect, you know, kind of joking. But, oh my goodness, 
it, it's, it can be so bad. So thank you guys for supporting some evidence-based stuff, you know, and it's, I don't know, it makes me happy. Yeah. All right. We're going to go to break. When we come back, uh, we'll talk about uh, diets. Hey, listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Hey, what's going on? It's Dr. Mike T. Nelson here on Iron Radio with Dr. Lonnie Lowry, Coach Phil Stevens. And this week in the topic, we're talking about the sort of extreme diet approach and sort of the extremeness in the fitness industry in general. Um, you know, all of us have been around for quite a while, as I'm sure a lot of the listeners have too. And you just see that in general, moderation never really becomes popular and it's interesting to see how everything will switch from one side to the other side. So even a few years ago, um, low-carbohydrate diets were kind of eh, eh, popular, I would say. And then we had the low-fat, and then now we're kind of going back to more high-fat. You know, carbohydrates are evil. More of the almost ketogenic-type diet will solve everybody's issues. And if you look at all the stuff, it's been around for quite a while. Um, I remember the first time I ever read about ketogenic diets was a um, cyclic ketogenic diet approach um, where you had, I think the Zimpano originally had, what is it, a 10-day template, I think, and then I think Lyle shortened it to a 7-day template, but you'd basically be more ketogenic for a fair amount of time. You'd have your one or two sort of carb-up days, and I think the idea was a good one at its heart you know, trying to increase the use of fat, but still use carbohydrates. And I remember trying it and, oh, I was utterly freaking <laughs> miserable other than the two high carb up days. And now you fast forward to some of the data and there's not that much published on a cyclic ketogenic diet. So going from super high fat, low carbs to, you know, a couple days of extremely high carbohydrates just seems like you end up in this metabolic sort of no man's land where those five days maybe you just kind of get into a, a ketogenic state towards the end 
So your body is using ketones kind of as an alternate fuel when you feel pretty good. And then you have a, a whack ton of carbohydrates and that kind of knocks you out of that for about the next four days or so. So what are your guys' thoughts on sort of the extremes approach? Mm. Well, it, like you said, it's back again. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You know, it just reminds me of the, the, the what's going on with keto right now reminds me of the Atkins craze. Yep, you know, that was very it, big for a while. Where it blew up. Um, really yeah, did I don't blow know. Up. I mean, I like, I like it. I mean, I think it works for a lot of people, especially for yeah. gen pop. Yes. You know, people that aren't athletes. And, you know, I'm a big fan of Mauro Di Pasquale's The Anabolic Diet. And I yep, think the biggest, the biggest problem with it is everybody reads, and it's the same thing as the freaking Atkins book. Everybody reads like the first 18 pages <laughs> they read chapter one and yeah. don't go any further yeah and they stay at 20 grams a day and yeah. you know Morrow goes deep into okay now you've gone through that now it's time to find your own personal carb level which might be 50 might be 200 mm-hmm. you know it's finding the level that you personally with your you know genetic code or whatever but also your activity level perform the best yeah. <laughs> you know and he goes into how being in ketosis is actually overrated. Um, well, he's just worried about you being leaner. You know, yeah. he's not so worried about being in ketosis. And it's just finding where, basically finding to get non-technical and more meatheadish, uh, finding the level of carbon take you can have without that spillover into not just refilling muscle glycogen and, and liver glycogen and stuff like that and it's spilling over into fat stores. Right. That it's, sounds like bodybuilding. Kind of, like in the yeah. last week of a bodybuilding show, you'll yeah. hear guys say, don't go over like some people say 250, some will say 350 yeah. grams a day because then instead of just getting muscle glycogen refilling, yeah, you, you quote unquote overspill in meathead talk, like you said, and then you yeah. just feel like, yeah, you're maybe you're drifting into, um, I don't know if it's either fat synthesis or water retention under your skin, you know, yeah. extracellular fluid, whatever it is. But it, does, it doesn't seem that advantageous to go too high, whereas the the marathon runner, they can wig out on nine grams per kg. Yeah. And they don't care about any kind of cosmetic stuff. And I mean, I think I think those diets like that one in and of itself are all very solid. It's just people are too lazy to actually take the time to figure it out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've seen about borrow stuff for like, them. I mean, I... I the guy obviously is extremely intelligent and he put a ton of thought into it was way ahead of everybody else. Um, but I've even seen people take his approach. And like you said, I don't think it's necessarily what he wrote and then said, Oh, well I got to be extremely high on carbs here. And then I got to, if I go more extreme and be more ketogenic during those phases, that'll be even better. And it's like, well, that's, yeah, really how it was intended. Like, yeah, yeah, everybody ends up being like at five grams every day during the week, and then they get seven thousand on one. Yeah, day. right. <laughs> right. It's it's somewhere in between. You know. You know, I think we get bogged down in the mechanism of action. I mean, some of the cyclical stuff. Like, are you after specific cell adaptations? We talked about this a couple of months ago. I think uh, there was the. I was showing some uh, video lectures in in my classroom and. We were talking about this. Are you after inducing some of the fat burning machinery in your cells, or is it just something that's more behavioral? You know, and you're really what you're doing, like you're saying, Mike, if you're waffling back and forth too rapidly, I think you tend to miss out on some of the adaptations, maybe. Uh, but behaviorally, you're still in like a negative calorie balance. You know, like yeah. I, when I talk to guys backstage, they're like, they won't touch a gram of carbs all week long. Yeah, then they'll literally eat a chocolate cake or a whole pizza on Saturday, and you think, oh, man, you're in such storage mode. The enzymes, LPL, you know, all this stuff is just in place to store every gram of that. But then from a calorie balance perspective, there's no way that chocolate cake, spread it out over the whole last week, like you said, Phil, where they're eating five grams of carbs a day, <clears throat> it's still uh, way negative, uh, of course, across the week. You know, but let me offer, uh, this is my thoughts on this stuff. Uh, It always comes up like, do I pull carbs or fats out of my diet? You know, and when I've done gen pop weight management, you're left with, I mean, nobody's going to do biopsies and look at whether or not they're inducing more or less pyruvate dehydrogenase or something. So, I mean, family history is one. I mean, if you have a family history of metabolic syndrome, 
so pre-diabetes, that's one in three Americans now. It's not likely if you're if you're fit, but I'm just talking about getting a, an indirect estimate of your uh, propensity, right, to handle carbs. Uh, family history could be one. If you have family history of metabolic syndrome or type 2 diabetes, you may be a poorer carbohydrate handler yourself. And then those are the people you hear very vocally online, like carbs are evil, mm -hmm. stay away from carbs. It's like, well, for you, they are. Like, Phil, you were saying with your genetic you know, family history is we've done that in nutrition and dietetics for decades because there are some things that have a strong genetic component. Uh, another one would be your subjective response to a high glycemic, you know, fast-acting meal. I can tell you, um, my grandmother had uh, type 2 diabetes. She was very overweight. Uh, my siblings are overweight. Uh, well, not all of them, but most of them. And um, if I eat a big bowl of Lucky Charms, I love that stuff, but I, I will get so sleepy and so fatigued, I'm wondering if I'm metabolizing that well. That didn't happen when I was in my 20s. You know, but now it does. So I can't do that kind of stuff. Or if you really want to get fancy, I know, uh, Mike, you and I have done this with people in the past or ourselves, is you can even just go buy a glucometer and do a finger yeah. prick. You know, what's your morning blood sugar before you have breakfast? If it's yep. if it's in the upper 90s or a little yeah. over 100, that's not a good sign that you're handling carbs very well right now. Uh, maybe your training volume is low, uh, whatever it is. Or you could even give yourself a glucose challenge, you know. Uh, one of the things I do in the classroom is I have people, they'll, uh, I'll sort of emphasize the blood sugar swings. I'll give somebody a, a serving of red beans or, or an apple, and we'll, we'll do finger pricks, you know, like every 30 minutes. And you see how nice and low that blood sugar response is. Then I give somebody else two to four pieces of white bread, and you could watch it spike, you know. But you could even do that in yourself. Like if, if you're really sore, you could be slightly carbohydrate intolerant. Sore muscles don't take up carbohydrates very well. I think that's where bodybuilders really started demonizing carbs is when you're sore all the time, you have a certain relative amount of glucose intolerance. You know, your blood sugars might run a little higher. Your insulin might be a little higher because your, your muscles are sore. They're kind of damaged. I mean, Ivy did some of that stuff. Kevin Yaroshevsky, Delaguila. You could just go down a list of people who have done this sore muscles uh, all the time, they do interfere with glucose tolerance and glycogen deposition. Uh, you could look at your training volume. If your volume is not real high, you're, you're walking the gym and literally like 15 reps later you leave because you're doing heavy work. That's not a ton of volume, you know, or you could look at your, whether you're getting a pump or not. Uh, again, all crude and indirect ways to assess this, but Maybe those are reasons to pull out the carbs instead of the fat. But then I can tell you at nine calories per gram, uh, fats add up fast on the energy balance side of things too. So I, at least for me, I found that I had to really address both. I couldn't just pull out the carbs and magically get ripped. So I yeah, and a lot of it, when you look at stuff too, I think I've seen some interesting meal plans from unnamed people. And if you were to try to actually cook real food, right, so translate their macros into actual food they're going to eat, it's like if anyone's tried to consume less than 30 grams of fat total in a day, it's horrible. Like you're eating egg whites and lettuce and because, you know, it, it adds up over time. Same thing if you're trying to dramatically reduce, you know, carbohydrates. So I think a lot of it has to be what's also practical for that person you know if you've got a big lifter trying to eat over 4,000 calories and you're saying you have to keep your fat under 50 grams oof, that's incredibly difficult oh yeah you know fortress used to say that like he said how much broccoli and brown rice do i have to eat right. it's like well it's because it's broccoli and brown rice bro break out the brownies yeah, <laughs> yeah. i mean in, in that case i mean if you're trying to crash through barriers you know geez yeah yeah. And one other thing, too, is that they actually have a 14-day glucose device you can wear now. We played with these a little bit in Costa Rica last week. And it'll have a, just a little tiny needle that sits in the interstitial fluid and does a sample every 15 minutes. And while the accuracy is not super good, it's primarily designed more for diabetics. You need a physician to sign off on it, but they'll still send it to you. Um, it's super interesting. We had a bunch there and looked at just different trends and just looked how different people respond to the same thing, right? So some people like the pineapple were like freaking off the charts. Other people, eh, no big deal, really. 
you know, so you just kind of see it the next level down, kind of that variability over the course of many days too. Yeah, I love I love the twenty four hour glucose monitoring. I used to have a couple of glucose. Uh, they're called Gluco watches, and that, mm-hmm. it's now a defunct um, technology. But similar you know, idea, but yeah, yeah. But I can tell you when they get Fitbits to the point that they can use some type of electrophoresis, or they can somehow draw just enough interstitial fluid without scratching the hell out of my wrist that's what this one does yeah yeah then uh i'm all about it i my students are always laughing they're like you're such a curmudgeon you know dr lowry but in le- until <laughs> until i can get some metabolic stuff like the 24-hour glucose monitoring i'm bored yeah. i'm bored with fitbits uh, I, I just want more <laughs> out of them but when you look at how they're micro miniaturizing so many pieces of lab equipment um yeah i think it's on the horizon and when that happens damn right i'm gonna buy one of those but yeah, I want yeah. some metabolic input too, not just an accelerometer telling me how much I move or how much I, you know, whether it's sleeping or, or whatever. But yeah, I think as the data gets better, if you look at, there's a couple of pieces of data now looking at insulin and even glucose. If you take a piece of equipment that's super accurate and you start doing multiple draws, right? So like if you leave an IV in someone, you just start pulling blood samples every minute or something like that, even for growth hormones, stuff like that excluding the lab costs it takes to currently run all of that. But what you find is that all of that stuff is way more variable from second to second, minute to minute than we believe that it currently right. is. Right, pulsatile, yeah. Yeah, yeah any yeah. endocrinologist the, will, will tell you that. pattern was kind of the, the next area once we get the technology there. Yeah, it's cool stuff. Uh, yeah, and that could give you insight. I know you're a big monitor guy you know you like to yeah. monitor people's uh, physiology yeah once we get to that point i think that's where it, it would just give someone information about like you were saying how they respond to different carbohydrates or a uh, higher fat or lower carb meal how easily do you get in ketosis you know we were just talking about that a little i remember cast foresight mm-hmm. saying my god i cannot get into ketosis you know and i think a lot of lifters they don't because they have too much protein in their diet Yes. You know, I'd love to get Jeff Volek on because he's one of those low carb for life kinds of guys, and he's one with the scientific acumen to back it up. And I would love to get his input because he's um, powerlifter, you know, professor, and he's always ripped. So it's, it's just curious stuff, but th- there's no doubt yeah. this stuff is cyclical. Yeah. Things yeah. coming. I think what's the trade off, too, right? So I'm. And I have some clients who have used a ketogenic diet. I'm not against it. I think it, like Phil was saying, depends on your goals and what you're trying to do. Yeah. But if they're saying, hey, I'm going to go do, you know, CrossFit or some high intensity stuff five days a week. Volume. Yeah. Ketogenic diet's the last thing I'm probably going to recommend for them. You know, one, they, they don't need it. It's sometimes harder to get enough variety. And most of them, they're doing a sport that's extremely high glycolytic carbohydrate based. So restricting the thing that they're trying to use during their sport performance is not the place I would start. Yeah. I think it's worth pointing out to listeners that uh, that classic crossover effect, it's easily demonstrable in the laboratory. You know, you mm-hmm. exercise at a moderate pace, no problem. You don't really feel that much fatigue. You're sort of non-panting, middle pace for a young person, like a heart rate around 120-ish maybe. But like you said, it, when you ramp up the intensity – to any appreciable degree, unless it's very, very brief and without much volume. Yeah, you cross over to carbohydrates. Those are the pathways that are fast enough to supply it, you know, the the energy to to do it. And so how can you not have that fuel and expect to be just as powerful across a workout? It just doesn't seem logical to me. But I don't know. People talk about how magical, you know, once you're fat adapted and, and uh, how well you can actually use ketones when you give your body no choice. So it's like I said, people like I'd like to have uh, Dr. Volek on so I could sort of dig into that because that just kind of goes against everything I was ever taught that you can just eschew the carbohydrates and and still be super powerful across any kind of volume. Um, I, I don't know about that. Yeah, and if you look at uh, Volek's uh, faster study, which is an amazing study, took you know highly adapted people to you know fat ketogenic, most of them were, and they did find that the rate of fat oxidation was higher than had it ever been reported in any textbook. Um, they did find that glycogen levels in general were pretty good, 
But the problem, I don't think, is necessarily what substrate is present. It's what substrate do you have access to? And we do know that uh, Stillingworth has shown this and a couple other people that long-term use of like a ketogenic high-fat diet does result in PDH enzyme changes and can prevent you from using carbohydrates to the highest degree. So if you take those athletes and measure, you know, strength and power, especially vertical jump, things of that nature, pretty much every case they're actually down quite a bit. Right. Yep. So if you want to kind of sacrifice that and you just want to up your average speed or power, or I should say pace is probably more accurate, then eh, that may be worth it. Um, but even during long races, like I was saying before, I was a volunteer for the Race Across America several years ago. You know, we're in the middle of like Colorado and you're still having to do hill passes, you know, day three into a 24 hour a day race. You know, so even on something that's, you know, starting in San Diego, finishing in Atlantic City, it's about as long endurance race as you can get. You still have periods of time where you have to have speed and power. There's no drafting, so you still have to be able to pass someone, so create a fair amount of high power to get by them. So it's pretty rare that you're always going to have a race where it's just going to be a high output, steady state. Right. I guess to to me, it it comes down to across the course of a of a workout, right? Like, Correct. Like if you're you're like, listen, I'm an Olympic lifter. I punch it up once. I walk away. I'll come back in a couple of minutes. Okay, but then... That might be all right. Yeah, as opposed to steady state, like what a cyclist might do. But, yeah, I, I would still argue across the course of a workout, it'd be very difficult. Uh, you know what? And I, we've actually had listeners write in and be like, they're explaining why they're so into the fat-adapted thing. And um, I'm not sure all of them understand on the on a mechanistic level, what's happening in a cell. Like you're saying, when you don't have that linchpin between glycolysis and the rest of your energy systems, how do you tap uh, the carbohydrates there very rapidly? It's just important to note that we're so used to thinking that hormones control our response to food, but food controls hormones and hormones affect the, you know, outcome of different genes. So, you know, nutrigenetics is a thing. You do turn on um, the expression of different parts of your metabolic pathways with, with the way you eat, you know, and, and yeah. And like Phil said, there's genetic differences there too. So it's, um, I, I don't know, it might be good to participate in a study like that if anybody has a chance to, because we keep reporting averages of, of people, but yeah, some of these things I think are more or less metabolic truths. So, yeah. And to me, obviously I'm biased towards metabolic flexibility is that I don't, think unless you get on the extreme ends of both spectrums you necessarily have to pick carbohydrates or only have to pick fat you know you can upregulate fatty acid use pretty high in most people and if it's done correctly not impair your body's ability to use carbohydrates you know if you get out on the extremes <clears throat> yeah at that point maybe you, you will um, but we also know that uh, there's a couple of studies that were done with just people, they grabbed them and shoved them on a metabolic cart and said, hey, during low intensity exercise, how well are you using fat? Uh, Helge did one, I did one, Gadecki did one. And what they showed was about you know 20 to 90% variation just under low intensity fasted exercise, how well people already are able to use fat. And you, know, you talk to anyone, like we've said this before, Lonnie, if you're looking at the metabolic cart, you have a few people that come in that are using a lot of carbohydrates just during their warm-up, like after they get through the accommodation phase. Yeah. So yeah. I think there's a lot of room in most people to increase the body's ability to use fat, and you don't necessarily have to sacrifice their you know weight training or performance either. Right on. I, you know that's that old school uh, bodybuilding approach, which is fasted, yeah. like pre-breakfast, light. It's, it's not even cardio. Um, calorie drain, you know, <laughs> fat specific calorie drain. And then, yeah. And then you eat your carbs, you eat your oatmeal and you, you go lift, you know, kind of thing and stimulate both kinds of systems. It just makes sense, I guess. But what are your thoughts, Phil? I agree. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I'm half asleep there, guys. No, I, yeah. We're, no, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, my job as a coach is to you know, I, I look at the individual's weaknesses. What's wrong with them or the individual's problems? And we address those. I can't address everybody the same way. So, yeah. 
If you could, you'd walk in your gym and you'd give everyone the same damn template and be like, hey, be on your way. I'm going to eat donuts and hang out at home. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that said, I mean, I've cured people with type 2 diabetes by having them go low carb for extended periods of time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, increase acti- muscle activity. That was our goal. Yeah. Our goal wasn't to make them jacked. And as a super athlete, it was let's get you healthy first and then we yeah. adjust from there. So. Yeah, I think uh, the problem with the fitness industry and the extreme diets is to sort of pull this back to the, to the beginning is the, the people, they desperately want to believe something. You know, Neil deGrasse Tyson has a great quote about before you try to assert a truth, make sure it's not something you desperately want to be true. You know, and, <laughs> and the, the most vocal people in our industry are the ones who are they're very bought into something and they're not willing to be neutral enough you know, and scientific enough to weigh evidence on both sides very fairly and not try to cherry pick and not try to take their own personal, oh, it works for me, so it'll work for you. That's not the (laughs) case, you know. And then they get so vocal about it and they start arguing about it. And real scientists, it's actually, it's fairly hard to argue with somebody who's philosophically got his head into science, right? Because I remember back in the day, they were going to have Scott Connolly debate protein stuff with Pete Lemon, my old advisor. You can't debate anything with Pete. He's like, Oh, that's an interesting point. Here's what I've yeah. seen. What have you seen? You know, and that's what we need to do. But that's not how people act in our industry. It's always the two extremes that are the most vocal, you know, and like you said, like you said, Mike, moderation doesn't sell, you know. Yeah, so. and I like the Neil deGrasse Tyson. I listened to the interview. I think it was on Joe Rogan, and he was saying, he's like, I don't debate people. He's like, I'll educate people, and I'll tell them what I believe that the current science and what we think is true, but he's like, it's not my job to try to figure out who's better with words versus somebody else right yep but that's an interesting perspective yeah it shouldn't have to be a contest in that way like you're trying trying to right. prove your point you know and that's a problem in our industry though is people they try to find their niche and the niches are disappearing you know so the it's harder and harder to find something that is very unique and yeah they they latch on to one kind of diet it could be the gluten-free diet or i was reading stuff about yeast related diets and there's all these different things and all of them have a kernel of truth you just need to look at them very objectively instead of trying to just spin one of them into a career because if you do that too much you come up with your book we've said this before you can't discredit your own book you'll hurt your sales you know (laughs) so that's and maybe that's why we're public supported you know with this um, podcast we don't have to sell one idea at the expense of all others all right. Good stuff, guys. Yeah, very cool. Well, thank so you, Dr. Sense. Nelson. Yep, and thanks, everybody. Yeah, well, thanks, guys. Yeah, catch up with you next time. Have a good one. All right. See you, guys. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store one for phil one for fortress and one for myself dr lowry and they're thematic so you can go into our halls of iron store and choose based on your goal if you need something to learn or read or something nutritional you can look in my store uh, lonnie's store if you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition then take a look at phil's hall of iron and if you want something about motivation or daily training fortresses hall has what you're looking for there are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores we try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store and whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced you can take heart that you're not wasting your time the things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. 
If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.